You're listening to a message from Victory Church of the Bay Area. For more information, please visit us on our website at victoryus.org. Morning, everyone. We are on week four of our series entitled Knowing God. The purpose of this sermon series is to help us know God better. And we've been looking through some of the more popular psalms in Scripture. So today we're going to read Psalm 103. And we're going to talk about God's graciousness. The last three weeks we talked about God being glorious. He's God of glory. That He's a glorious God. Secondly, we talked about His goodness. He is a very, very good God. A God who is good to us. Who has good concerning us. And last week we talked about God being generous. He is a generous God. Today we're going to talk about God being gracious. He is a gracious God. And, and so if you have your Bibles with you, Psalm 103, the title says, Of David, verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works. In all places of his dominion, bless the Lord, O my soul. Thank you, Father, for your word. Just the reading of this psalm is encouraging already, speaking life to us. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit so that we would understand what your Spirit is saying through the word that you have written for us. Father, this word is life. Let that life be embedded deep in our hearts so that we may know you more. Thank you, Father. We commit the rest of this sermon to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we're looking at Psalm 103, 
Psalm 103 is a psalm of thanksgiving and praise. It's attributed to David, and the psalmist here is celebrating the goodness of God, uh, apparently in his experience of God's goodness in his life. He also celebrates the, the goodness and the graciousness of God, the mercy of God, to those who have received it and yet have not deserved it. Okay, how many of you would say that God has been very, very good to you to the point that you say, I don't even deserve his goodness? Again, there are different ways to write the Psalms. We talked about this acrostic, I think that was two weeks ago. Some Psalms were written as an acrostic with each successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet beginning each line. And that requires a lot of skill, a lot of basic creative thinking to express your worship unto God. You just don't write flippantly. You really take the time to write down what you want to say to God in a creative and structured way. This one was written in a chiastic form. It's called a chiasmus. Okay, what is a chiasmus? A chiasmus is a literary device, basically, which is a symmetrical structure involving some form of inversion or the reversing of word order in parallel phrases around a central theme. Some of you are going, what? Let me explain to you. Here is the structure of a chiasmus. Okay, so basically... There are either words, statements, or themes that are mentioned. And then this is a form of parallelism. And with the chiastic structure, the whole point of the psalm is found in the center. This is the central theme. This is the central idea. That is the point, the whole point of the message of the whole psalm. What is that central theme that you look for? So, so basically, when the psalmist wrote this, David is very good in writing psalms. He wrote acrostics. He wrote in chiastic form. It takes a lot of skill to do this. And the psalms are actually songs of, they can be songs of thanksgiving, song of adoration, a song of ascent. There are different types. But these are all expressions of worship unto God. And so for David to really be creative in his writing, that shows you how much of a worshiper he is. That he has the heart of worship, and he expresses it through his creativity. And so here, as we study chiastic forms in this particular psalm, actually the chiastic form is really, really deep, but I pretty much simplified to make it easier for me to understand and for us to understand. So we don't have time to really look at the line-by-line chiastic structure of this one. Psalm 103, I simplified the chiasmus into this. First, the Hebrew poem's classic construction is quite complex. Verses 1 to 2 is your section that speaks of the theme of praise. David was calling himself to praise God. The psalmist was saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Who was he talking to? He was speaking to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Basically, he's saying, praise him. Soul, praise him. How many of you, there were times that you didn't feel like worshiping? You don't feel it. I don't feel like it. Maybe you've had a bad day. You're not in the mood to worship God. Well, you know what? Our worship of God is not dependent on our mood. And that's why David always told himself, bless the Lord, O my soul. And when he was downcast, he even always talked to himself. There was even a time when he was downcast. David said, Why so downcast, O my soul? 
Put your hope in God and bless the Lord. He was encouraging himself. That's the same way he would encourage someone who's downcast. Why are you so downcast? Put your hope in God and bless his holy name. Don't allow yourself to be weighed down by discouragement. Bless the Lord. He would tell that to people. He would tell that to himself as well. Why are you downcast? Why are you discouraged? Okay, so David is this. He was calling himself to praise God. And there are many reasons why we can praise God. If you notice, the book ends. It began with praise. It ended with praise. As he began praising God, he began praising God for the divine acts of goodness that he has experienced in his life. God's great acts. So he praised him for that. And then he praised God for God's goodness to humanity, basically. As he began praising God. I don't know about you, but when I'm down, sometimes I don't feel like praying. I just start by praising God. And all of a sudden, you get in the zone. And when you get in the zone, you start praising God. All of a sudden, you remember and you would be reminded of many, many reasons why we are to praise God. Are there reasons why you can praise God this morning? Then why aren't we praising Him? David would say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. He would tell everybody, praise God and bless His name. Because there are many reasons why we can praise Him. And so he praised Him for His divine acts of goodness to humanity. And then, as he continued doing that, he began meditating on how God was expressing his goodness. So he talked about God's ways. So in verses 8 to 14, this is our main theme here, and we will unpack that. And then, as he meditated on God's ways, he was encouraged himself by how God is, because God is immutable, meaning he's unchanging, and if he is good before, he will continue to be good. And therefore, as he meditated on how God is, his ways, he was assured of his goodness. That's why in Psalm 27, he said, For this I will be sure, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then in another place, he said, I was young, now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken. He said that when he was old. But he, when he was younger, he said, I am sure of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. How many of us can say that? The times may look bleak. You may get discouraged. Maybe because your candidate didn't win and you're discouraged. Maybe you joined some of those who protested. It's not the end of the world, people. I am sure of this. If your faith is in God, we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In other words, as long as I'm alive, I will see his goodness in my life. Fast forward many years later, he's old. I was young, now I'm old. Yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken. You see, David was operating from a revelation of God. And it's a revelation that he himself has experienced. It's not just hearsay or somebody else's testimony. He himself has experienced the goodness of God. That's why he's able to tell people about him. That's why he's able to encourage people to praise God. And so here in the psalm, we are given the divine assurance of goodness despite the frailties of humanity. So divine acts of goodness here, divine assurance of goodness. And then here, the psalm ended with David calling all of creation. He called the mightiest of angels. 
And he called the hosts of heaven, all the spiritual beings. And then he called all of God's work, basically all of God's creation, all that God has created. And he ended with, he called himself again. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He called everyone, angelic beings, all of God's creation, and himself to praise God. Let's look. Verse 8 says this. The central idea of the psalm is this. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Was that an original thought by David? No, that was something that God himself said. That is how he revealed himself to Moses. Remember when Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. Many centuries before David, when Moses was leading the people of Israel into the promised land, and they were about to step in, and God said, I will not go with you because this is a stiff-necked people, but I'll send my angel to go with you. And Moses said, if you don't go with us, how will the nations know that you're with us? Show me your glory, O Lord. And God said, I can't show you my glory. Because the Bible does say, if we see the full glory of God in our sinfulness, no one can stand in his awesome presence. But God did say, because Moses was God's friend, he said, here's what I will do. I'll put you in the rock. There's a cleft there. I will put you in there, and I will cover you with my hand when I pass by so that you will not see my face. You will not see me, but when I pass by, I will remove my hand, then you will see my backside. And then as God passed Moses in a cleft, he declared himself. He said, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's how he revealed himself. That's why all throughout the the Old Testament, you will see this phrase again and again. Because this is God's revelation to them. So you see, if you are of the idea that the Old Testament is God is a God of wrath and of justice, yes, He is, but look at how He has revealed Himself all the time. He revealed Himself to Moses. Why? Because He heard the cry of His people and He had compassion on them. And then here, He revealed Himself merciful, gracious, slow to become angry, and abounding in steadfast love. Steadfast love means loyal love. So here, basically, what does this verse say? This reveals the grace of God. That is the central idea of this psalm. So the word grace, by our accepted definition, is the unmerited love and favor of God. But can I tell you also, another aspect, another definition of grace that you can add to that unmerited love and favor is this. Grace is the empowering presence of God that enables us to be what He has called us to be and to do what He has called us to do. That's why when God calls us to do something, He calls us to do something beyond our abilities so that when we say yes to God in doing that, knowing that we can't do it on our own, but we have to rely on His grace, and then when we obey and we do it and we find His power enabling us to accomplish it, and when we finish it, our testimony is this, I have accomplished that only by the grace of God. And when we talk about that, it's not just unmerited love and favor, but it's the empowering presence of God that enabled you to finish that, that enabled you to be what God's called you to be and enabled you to do what He has called you to do. So that's what grace is. Now, 
The word gracious means, let me read from the HarperCollins Bible Dictionary. Gracious means the quality of showing favor and mercy. The term is usually applied to a person of superior position and power who is kindly disposed toward a person of inferior position and power. The example is Potiphar was an official in Egypt and Joseph was a slave in Potiphar's house. Okay, let me just clarify it. Potiphar is not the wife, okay? Potiphar is the husband. The wife was not named. A lot of people think Potiphar, they think of the adulterous wife. No, Potiphar is the husband of the adulterous wife that tried to seduce Joseph. So here, Potiphar was the one in authority and Joseph was a slave. And yet, him having the authority, he was kindly disposed toward Joseph. He was kind to Joseph. That's what being gracious means. Maybe another word that can come close to being gracious is magnanimous. When you've been given grace, that means you were treated with favor, something that you did not deserve. Another example is Ruth. She found favor in the eyes of Boaz. Remember, Ruth was a widow who was gleaning in the fields of Boaz. And Boaz was the owner of the field. And Boaz, the one with authority, said to his workers, don't take everything. Let it fall so that Ruth can glean from our harvest. And don't hold everything. Just leave a few more for her. So there was favor there. Another example is Queen Esther. She was married to King Ahasuerus of Persia. Remember, even if she was the queen, she can't just go. there in, in their culture, they're not equals. The queen is subject to the king. And in their custom, the queen cannot just go to the king. Hey, can I tell you something? I didn't appreciate what you called me the other day. If a queen does that to the king in that culture, she's going to be dead. So here, with respect to King Aswerus, Queen Esther was the inferior one because of the position. King Aswerus was the superior one. Queens are not allowed to just go into the chamber of the king without being called. During the time when she, of uh, impending calamity for her people, she asked her people, please pray and fast for me. I have not been called by the king, but I will go to him. That's against the law, but I will go to him on your behalf, on behalf of my people. And if I perish, I perish. That's what she said. If I perish, I perish. When she went to the king's chamber, the king granted her favor. He was gracious with her. That's what gracious means. In the Bible, it is above all God who is gracious toward human beings. And he stated that in his revelation of himself to Moses. Now let's go through each of these segments in the chiastic pattern that I showed you. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. That's another way of saying, I will bless the Lord with everything that I've got. With all that I am. And he calls himself to praise God with everything he's got. And then he says here, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Why do you think he said that? Why did he tell himself, don't forget? Because all of us have a tendency to forget the goodness of God in our lives. And here's what he said, forget not all his benefits. And then he begins to outline just a few of the benefits that he has experienced and what he has seen God do for his people and for all humanity. He said this, 
These are some of the benefits. He said, He who forgives all your iniquity, He forgives you of your sin and the guilt that's caused by that sin. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit, from the pit of sin, from your bondage to sin. It can also be, He redeems you from a physical situation, but He also redeems you in the spiritual pit of sin. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He bestows upon you steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good. Now remember, who was he talking to? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and bless His holy name. I will bless Him with everything that's within me. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not His benefits. Don't forget, He forgave you of your iniquity. He healed all your diseases. He was talking to Himself. Remember those things God did. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of the things God did for us. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. That means you have vigor in life. The older you get, sometimes you get more cynical in life. And then you have some fresh college grad excited to take the world and make an impact in the world and go, yeah, sure. But when you encounter God, no matter what age you are, you're going to be revived. Your, your vigor will be, you will be invigorated by the Spirit of God. And David was telling himself that, remember, he satisfies you with good. And then he begins to speak about the Lord's works. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who oppress. He's now praising God for the things He has done for humanity. Not just for what God has done for Him. He's now praising God for what He is doing for all humanity. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He's seen it. That's why His conclusion when He was old, I've never seen a righteous forsaken. Because the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses his acts or his works to the people of Israel. That's actually another sermon right there, that one verse. It's interesting. God made his ways known to Moses. He revealed himself to Moses by his ways. But he revealed himself to the nation of Israel by his works. How many of you know the things that Ammon has accomplished in this church? We know that, right? But how many of you know how he is like? who can understand how he thinks, what he thinks. But who understands his ways? I can tell you, not all of you, but there's one who really understands him apart from God. And it's Michelle. Michelle understands his ways. Like my wife and I, sometimes we're in a situation and then I see something, I don't even say anything and she goes, don't even think about it. She knows my tendencies. She knows my ways. What does that speak of? It speaks of relationship. If you know someone's ways, that means you have a meaningful relationship with the person. But I'm not going to spend time on that one. And then he gets now to the main theme of his meditation, why he's praising God. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And then, as he meditated on that revelation of God, he basically describes how God is, according to that revelation. Verse 9, he said, He will not always chide, because he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. God gets angry. 
God does get angry. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest preacher in U.S. history, president of Princeton University, he had a sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That is a scary sermon. And it's a scary truth. You see, God is great, but don't abuse Him. Don't mess with Him. Don't think you can manipulate Him. Don't think you can wrap Him around your finger. Because when you do, I'll remind you, Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But God is slow to get angry, but He does get angry. So when He does get angry, what does that mean? If He's slow to get angry, and then He gets angry, what's the implication there? If He gets angry with you, that means you've been obstinate. You've pushed the envelope too far. I mean, you've really maxed out your limit, and you're about to get it. But God's punishments and disciplines are redemptive, not punitive. He punishes to redeem, to teach a lesson, to discipline. So here, he says he will not keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. That's how amazing God is. We're messed up, we're janked up, we're crazy selfish, and yet he does not deal with us according to our sins. Because if he did, then he would have to wipe us out from the face of the earth. That's what's fair. A lot of people say, God, you're unfair. Yeah, he's unfair to himself. Because if he meets out to us what's fair, what's fair is that we will all be wiped off the face of the earth in judgment. But he withholds that and gives us a chance to find his redemption, to receive his redemption. The question is, will we grab that opportunity? He does not deal with us according to our sins. You know how he deals with us? He deals with us according to his purpose for us. And he says there, he does not repay us according to our iniquities. Verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's echoed all throughout the Bible. This is what the Lord said to Moses. It's in Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Continuing on, verse 11, it further describes the work, what God has done. Further describes God's ways. Now, the psalmist is now meditating on the graciousness of God, His mercy, His grace, His unfailing, steadfast love for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who believe. When you talk about the heavens, we're not talking about just the stratosphere. You talk about basically just the highest heavens. And we know that basically that expands all throughout the universe. So it's an infinite distance. This is the rendition in David's time of saying it's unmeasurable. His faithfulness. You want to know how wide God's love is? How, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep? This is how it is. That's how faithful God is. So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Now, he didn't say to everybody. He's faithful to everyone. He gives grace to everybody, unbeliever and believer alike. But to those who fear him, those who fear him are those who experience, who see God's grace more and more. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And here he meditates further. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He begins to look at humanity's frailty. Verse 15, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, and then the wind blows 
and then we're gone. And its place knows it no more. The Bible says our lives are just like a breath compared to God. As far as eternity is concerned, that's how short our lives are. But David said, what is man that you're mindful of him? He says here, even though we're just like a breath, your steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. He shows, he demonstrates his steadfast, his loyal love to those who fear him. And his righteousness to their children, basically. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. And then David said here, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. He gives us two assurances here in these four verses. The first assurance is that the Lord's steadfast love is enduring. Secondly, his kingdom stands forever. That speaks of his sovereignty. The God who loves you is the sovereign ruler of all creation. That's why in some of the other psalms that they wrote, Whom shall I fear? You set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. How many of us are paralyzed and gripped by fear? And because of fear, we're prevented from doing the things we're supposed to be doing. When we allow fear to paralyze us, that means we're not trusting in God or we don't understand His goodness. But David understood it. Even though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You place a table before me in the presence of my enemies and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You see the heart of David there? He trusts in God above all things. Was he perfect? No. Again, he was an adulterer and a murderer and a schemer. But God spoke of David as a man after his own heart. So the central theme, again, is the grace of God, and it's founded on his steadfast love. Now, I want to land this now. We just discussed all those things, hopefully, just to whet your appetite for God and take a peek into David's understanding of God, and hopefully we could also take a peek at his heart. He understood the steadfast love. He crowns us with his steadfast love, his love is steadfast for those who fear Him and who honor Him. And His steadfast love is eternal and generational. It affects us eternally and it affects our children generationally. Let me end with this story. More than 10 years ago, a church member, this is a true story, I wrote this down. Okay, I use this as an illustration in, 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 uh, in one of my sermons more than 10 years ago. More than 10 years ago, a church member related to me his fascinating testimony of God's goodness and grace in his life. For his protection, we will just call him Joe. You like Joe? That's not his real name. And for the purpose of sharing the story, we will not mention some other specific details of the story. But you'll get the story. Let me continue on. Joe worked as a singer in a certain club in a certain country. In just a short time, he received favor from a group of big-time-looking customers frequenting the place, and they made him a business proposition. The offer was the opportunity of a lifetime to make lots of money. Being a non-Christian at the time, he accepted a job. He became the runner and broker for an infamous crime syndicate in that particular country. He became in charge of finding and lending money to financially challenged individuals at exorbitant rates. Try 80%. He serviced mostly Filipino women living in that country with small businesses. 
When the people who owed money could not pay up at the appointed time, the crime bosses decided to just take them in and make them do what they want until they should pay up. Basically, they owned them. The women did not want to agree, but their lives were in danger if they refused. So they sought Joe's help. And being compassionate to his compatriots, he agreed. And here's how they devised it. They devised a plan to eliminate the boss. And they hired someone to take care of this person. But because the person that was going to be eliminated was the big boss, nobody would want to take that job. Nobody would like to assassinate that person. So the lender could not be eliminated easily. So Joe, with the black hood covering his face, took matters in his own hands and did the job himself with a small sword. But for some strange reason, the victim did not die. Joe was on the run, but no one knew it was he who did it. It would have been a perfect escape except for the time he was drinking with some people and he accidentally mentioned about the incident as a third-party observer. Remember this, loose lips sink ships. The word got to the crime syndicate that Joe knew about it, and so they went after him. And since they controlled the police, Joe was arrested after four months of hiding and living as a fugitive. His trial lasted five years, and he was in custody in a minimum security prison facility the whole time. It was there at that prison that he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. And he got saved through the ministry of an every nation pastor in that prison, ministering to the prisoners. He read the Bible, learned about praying and fasting, about sharing the gospel to his fellow inmates. He also used that time to learn through self-study the language of the nation where he was at. He asked forgiveness from his victim through letters he sent. In his own words, it was inside prison that I was set free. After years, his case came to a close and he received a 13-year sentence, which was reduced to 10 years in a maximum security prison. But he was a new man in Christ. His coming into the new prison was seen as God's open door to him to be God's missionary to the prisoners. So the whole time he witnessed to the inmates whether he was in danger inside or not. His good behavior caught the favor of the warden and Joe received favor from the warden was made as the mayor, quote-unquote, of all the inmates. That sounds like the story of Joseph in the Bible, right? That's what happened to him. He was given free movement within the facility while the rest were restricted. He became the eyes and ears of the warden. This freed him to do whatever ministry and Bible study he wanted to do with the inmates. After five years of serving his 10-year sentence, he got paroled. He was actually given the choice to stay in that country or go back home to the Philippines. Of course, he chose to go back home. When he got back, he got plugged into our church at Victory upon the recommendation of the every nation pastor in that country who mentored him. He even courted his family back because he was gone for 12 years. After some time of not having any work, he was encouraged to apply for a translating job for a firm that's from that country in the Philippines. Out of 26 trained people, he was the only one chosen. They did not ask his background or how he learned to speak that language. And he was given five-day-a-week job with a good pay. After some time, he got into a new job, but things were getting better. Then he transferred to his employer at the time that I spoke to him as a translator. But the favor of God was with him, and he was quickly promoted to the position of administrative manager. All the line or department managers reported to him. God is blessing him despite his background. 
He is showing God's kindness, goodness, and love to others. For he received the kindness and the goodness of God in his life. He could have rotten in prison, and here he is, free and ministering to people. Asked if he deserved everything he received from God, he said, not a bit. It is purely the grace of God in his life. God's kindness and goodness was overflowing in his life. You see, God does not deal with us according to our past. He deals with us according to our purpose, our future in him, our destiny in him. God is indeed good all the time. J.I. Packer said this, The grace of God is love freely shown towards guilty sinners, contrary to their merit and indeed in defiance of their demerit. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. Grace and salvation belong together as cause and effect. Ephesians 2 verses 5 and 8 says this, By grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Titus 2.11 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And you see, God's ultimate expression of His grace came in the form of a man. He sent His one and only Son, the second person of the God, God the Son, became a man. Because God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, will have eternal life. Jesus Christ was the ultimate expression of God's goodness and grace and mercy and steadfast love. And if we are not in Christ, then mercy, grace, steadfast love, those are concepts foreign to us. We are still in bondage to our sins. You see, in Jesus, He forgave all our iniquity. He heals all our diseases. He redeems our lives from the pit of sin. He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies us with His good purpose so that we can have renewed life. Not just renewed life, we can have eternal life. So I'd like to end with this. Despite human frailties, God's grace is expressed in His steadfast love for us in and through Jesus Christ alone. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, your grace. Your graciousness is so overwhelming. Lord, the grace of God appeared to bring salvation. And that grace appeared in Jesus Christ. For it is in Christ alone can we receive your grace, your forgiveness, your mercy, your unfailing love. And Lord, I pray that all of us here would experience all of these things through Christ.